The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. So as I told you when we first announced that we were going to begin gathering together on Sunday evening, my long-term plan is for us to work together, or at least begin working together through the Minor Prophets. But it seemed to me that it might be good at first for us to revisit why it is that we're gathering. Why would I think that it's a good idea to have the necessary preparation for one more sermon to my plate? Why would I think it's a good idea to cut into your whatever you're doing tonight? Your television time, your family time, your family walk, your gathering together to eat food together, whatever it is that you normally do on a Sunday evening. What is, the, what is the value in this? What is the purpose in this? What's the driver behind this? Now, we worked through, you will recall, the Ten Commandments on Wednesday night together during the summer. And, of course, we did come to the Fourth Commandment, the commandment, the commandment to remember the Sabbath and to keep it holy. And we unpacked that some there from a very practical level. But I'd ask you to hear the words of Isaiah 58, verses 13 to 14. I read this. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth, I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, from the mouth, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Church, there's tremendous promise there from God. That for those people who would make the Sabbath a delight, who would guard the Sabbath, who would honor the Sabbath, who would protect this day, this one day in seven, who would set it aside and protect it as that which belongs to God. He has promised in his word that there is great blessing for us if you look back over the history of the church you don't have to go that far into the past but certainly if you look back over the history of the church you will find a people who charged hard after these promises you'll find a people that took God at its word with regards to this and they knew there is blessing in keeping this commandment now the good news is that this commandment is fairly straightforward you see, we can have this twisted idea in our mind that because the Pharisees and the other religious leaders during Jesus' day, because they had added so much on to this commandment, we might at times get it twisted up in our head to think that if we would go to the Old Testament and we would do a search of all the texts, all the scriptures that tell us what the Sabbath is meant to be, that we're going to find just an abundance of laws. The reality is if you do that, you'll find how very wrong it is. The commandment with regard to the Sabbath was very straightforward. It was a day to be remembered, it was a day of rest, and it was a day that was meant to be kept holy. Now in some, very few places, you'll find some things that are prohibited on that day, one of them in particular being kindling a fire in your home. But other than that, so much of what we saw ruling the day during Jesus' time on earth, so much of what we see taking place in Israel to this day, when we went there, I guess it's been two years ago, three years ago, something like that. Whenever you were in the more conservative portions of Israel, a town like Jerusalem, you would find that there was an incredible burden that came with the keeping of the Sabbath. 
they thought that they could not cook any food, and so you would show up on this day, and there would be these little candle warmers that had kept your eggs warm overnight. You would find that they thought it was a sin to push the button on an elevator, and so they would have the elevator opening on every single floor, which was a burden when you're on the eighth floor. You would find that in some places they believed that it was a sin, it was considered work, it was an abomination and a, and a desecration of the Sabbath to do something like tearing toilet paper. So you would go into some of their bathrooms and you would find little squares of toilet paper seated up on the back of the commode. So you found that the people of God, they had taken this gift from God, this commandment from God, and they had added all types of instructions on top of it, all types of requirements and burdens on top of it. And yet if you, you look back through the history of the church, you'll find that there were times in which these people charged hard after the straightforward, simple commandments of God, I will honor him and I will protect this day in order that I might rest. Now that's of course going to look different in every single generation. There's going to be times when rest for a certain people might look very, very active. Rest might look like a bike ride. Rest might look like working in your workshop. Rest might look like laying down and taking a nap. Or rest might look like gathering in a place like this under the word of God. And yet for so many people, they seem to believe that this commandment must be outdated. They, they, view the, they view the way in which the church is related to the Sabbath. They view it almost like the way we think about contemporary versus traditional music. That time was then, and now we've moved on to something greater. We look back almost as if they're aliens from another planet when we think about those bygone ages when men would never, be, never dare to be seen out on the streets on the Sabbath. That if someone was out walking through a town, you assumed one of two things. Number one, he's not from here. Or number two, someone must be severely hurt and they're going to seek help for them. Because other than that, the people did not venture outside of their homes other, to, other than to go to a place of worship. A bygone age when people would gather together in their home and a, a child might come up to his father and say, Daddy, will we, will we plow the southern field tomorrow? And the father looks to that child and says, Son, we speak about that tomorrow, not on the Lord's Day. Even just looking back 20 or 30 years ago, I think about when I was a little boy. I think about the fact that if on Sunday morning there was rare occasion when we would not make it to church, very rare, when one of my sisters was sick or something had happened. Then my mom would look at me and say, today's not the day that you can go outside and play. But a thought like that never even crosses men's minds today. Even the most devout believers, even men within a church like this, the thought that there would be an entire day, not just an hour, not just a morning, but one day out of seven, the entirety of a day that is set apart unto God, it doesn't belong to you, so don't touch it. But you see, dear friends, here's the problem. Somebody is wrong. Either they were or we are. Now, I'm not saying that they were absolutely perfect in their practice. They were absolutely perfect in their application of this. Certainly, there's overcorrections on either side. But the reality is that so much, when I say we are, I mean the contemporary American church. I mean professing believers in this current age. Men who think that there is no commandment still standing, they treat it as if there is nine commandments. The fourth commandment no longer applies. We can do whatever we want with this day as long as there is one time of gathering in the morning. The problem is, either they are right and there is great blessing in their obedience with regards to the Sabbath, or we are wrong. Not only are we missing out 
on joy and pleasure and reward, but we're disobeying and dishonoring God. We are breaking his commandment. So I pray you see why this isn't a, a flippant thing. This isn't a minor deal. We wouldn't speak about this like something like adultery or murder. Now you see, it's easy to look backwards and go, yeah, but look at the way they treated the Sabbath back then. If a man was seen doing too much work on that day, if a man was seen doing something that God had forbidden on his Sabbath on that day, they put that man to death. Are you saying that's what we should do today? Well, no. But the reality is they put adulterers to death in that day. The reality is they stoned the young man who dishonored his father and his mother. And yet I continue to look at these little children and tell them, you must honor your father and your mother. The fact that so much of the ceremonial law the civil law, the way in which God said this portion of my moral law will be carried out by you people in this place at this time. The fact that that has been done away with does not do away with the principle. We must remember that in God's moral law, in this law that he has written on the hearts of men, in this law that goes all the way back to the beginning, God is revealing to us something about himself. This isn't a list of arbitrary do's and don'ts. He's not some kind of cosmic policeman. God is showing us who he is. He's showing us the best thing in all the universe. And so, of course, there will be blessing as we pursue this. Of course, there will be blessing as we pattern our life after this. But the problem is it's incredibly difficult because we're dealing with the most precious resource in all the world, time. I can always go make more money. Not so much anymore now that I'm a pastor, but there was time I'd go make some money. But time, I can't get it back. So we begin to hoard our time. We say, we'll give you this much of my day, Father, but the rest of it belongs to me. We evidence this by the fact that the minute we hit those doors, the minute we're done singing doxology, where do our minds go? Where do our conversations lead? How quickly have we hit that door and gotten to the truck with our wife before we finished chewing her out just as we were on the way to church. And so the reality is that there is no amount of external restrictions that are going to bind your heart to the law of God. That's the story of the gospel. That's the story of the new covenant. It doesn't matter how many blue laws we put into place. It isn't that a quaint idea. Blue laws where the whole of society, even non-believers, their lives were restricted in accordance with the commandments of God. But no matter how many blue laws you put in place, no matter what we do as a faith family in order to try and honor the Sabbath as holy, unless you are convicted, unless you are convinced in your spirit that the Sabbath still applies, it's never going to mean anything. You'll follow along. The reality is that Amanda and I, we were those people, we've been in this church for, I don't know, 20 years now. We were those people since day one, since the day we got married. If the church doors are open, we are there. I mean, I, I honestly can't think of a time that we just sat home. If we were on vacation or if one of us was sick, perhaps then we would miss. But the reality is Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday night, and everything else in between, when those doors opened, we were here. But dear friends, I tell you, there were a bunch of days when we were not keeping the Sabbath. There were a bunch of days when we were not honoring God. There were a bunch of days when we were not treating that day as holy. There were a bunch of days when we received no joy and no pleasure and God was not delighted in anything about us just because we came to this place. So it isn't about what we do. It isn't about putting a bunch of external barriers around our life. It isn't about 
necessarily just restricting what we do with our time. It's about the heart. And unless you are convicted, then it's not going to matter. I, I stood up here earlier before we began our time together, and I, I asked you to be patient with us. I'm not used to writing two sermons a week. Not like this. Well, I guess you consider Wednesday night. That's a third. This is new for me, and I'm a baby pastor, and I'm trying to figure out what this looks like. And so I felt an incredible burden on my heart as I thought about this. It's got to be good because it's the first one I want people to come back. I want them to be fed. I want it to be worth their while. And then God looked at me and said, how dare you, son? How dare you believe that the quality of your performance, that your ability to preach is somehow what's going to draw people into my house? They're convicted in their heart. They will show up. Even if you stand up in that place, you read the word of God, you shed a tear, you sit down, and that's it. And you can preach the most beautiful speech in all the world, the most beautiful sermon these people have ever heard, but if their hearts are not bound to me, if they don't believe that this day belongs to me, it'll all be for naught. But if you're convicted, if you're truly convicted in your heart, then you see how it isn't about setting a bunch of barriers around our life. The application just takes care of itself. I told you whenever we were talking about the commandment against adultery that I had a dear friend a while back, a young man that was very young in the Lord. He was seeking to honor God. He was seeking to follow after God. We were driving along one day, and he was telling me about a physical relationship that he was having with a woman, a woman that he was not married to. This young man tells me, you know what? I found out that this girl's married. I've got to cut it out because I don't want to commit adultery. I don't want to sin against God. I had to inform this young man that God's commandment against sexual immorality it covers a lot more than just you touching a married woman it's any woman that you're not married to from that moment that man was convicted the practicalities worked themselves out do you understand he needed to hear the word of god believe that it was true and then the step-by-step -step actions that come from that that's just the working of the holy spirit within us so my goal tonight is not to try and convince you that you've got to be in this place on sunday night that may not be what god has for you as i said when we started this god's design for your life Maybe to stay home, cook a meal together, watch a wholesome movie if you can find such a thing, and glorify God as you rest and stay in communion and fellowship with your family. For others, it's going to be to come to this place and sit under the teaching of God's word. But again, my goal is not to tell you what you must and must not do on this day. My goal is to convict you that the Sabbath is holy that the whole of this day belongs to God. Therefore, every single decision you make from this point forward is, is it to his glory? So, if you look back to the story of creation, what you'll find very quickly is that God has set patterns in this world. That God was a God of order. You remember that in the beginning there was the world was formless and without void. And yet, as God spoke, we begin to see order taking shape. Land popping up amongst the seas. Stars being ordered and named in the cosmos. But then within that, we see God's ordering of time. We see him giving us dark and light, day and night. We see that God making very clear that I am a God who has set certain patterns with regards to time in my creation. We see how this is a gift from God whenever we consider what happened after the flood. You remember that after the flood, Noah is there and God is issuing his covenant with Noah. Now the most well-known portion of what God's promise to this man was was that he would never again flood the earth. But there's another piece to that that's often missed. Before Genesis 9, at the end of Genesis 8, we find God there telling him that as long as this earth remains, my patterns stay. 
It will be a time of seed time and of harvest, of hot and of cold, of day and of night. And we're reminded what an incredible gift from God these patterns that he's worked into our life are. So we see from the very beginning a pattern of day and night and years and months. You know that I'm obsessed with the moon. Me along with Ezra Bird, we love the moon. Talk about the moon, stare at the moon, think about the moon. You think about the fact that God has ordered his calendar based on things we have no control over whatsoever, like the moon. The rotation of the earth. The revolution of the earth around the sun. Clearly there's some purpose in this. We see here in Genesis 2, beginning in verse 1, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now we know that God did not need rest because God does not get exhausted. Whenever we talk about the omnipotence of God, particularly when I'm speaking with young children, I tell them to imagine the power bar or the energy bar or whatever it is that you have on your video game that goes down when the man sprints too long or he takes a hit or something like this. With God, it is infinite. God doesn't grunt. God doesn't groan. God doesn't break a sweat. God doesn't need to rest. In fact, God didn't rest. What it says is that God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. That from that point forward, God was continuing to work because he was sustaining the whole of earth. We recognize that if God were, ceased, would, were to cease doing his work, you would cease to exist. That at every moment and every hour and every day, God is working to hold all things together. And yet he, worked, he, he, he rested on that day from his work in creation. This was to show us perhaps, I'm done and I didn't need your help. It is very good. I've created this world the way that I have intended it. That Adam, while you were asleep, I gave to you a woman. Adam, before you existed, I created the elephants and the mountains and the stars and the seas. Adam, I did not need your help. What I've created is very good, and now I rest to show you this completion. But in addition to this, we see that he was setting a pattern for us, a pattern six days of work and one day of rest. What God was doing was he was inviting his highest creature to join him in resting from his complete and perfect work. We're going to see this pattern as we work through the story of the Sabbath in Scripture. We're going to see just how often what God is doing is he is inviting us to rest in the work that he has done. He's not telling us, you must do this thing. You must earn this rest. You must complete this project, and then you can rest. It is time after time after time, God doing things that we could never do, and then inviting us to rest in its completion. That that's the pattern that God had set in creation. And in the beginning, it was easy. In the beginning, it was easy for Adam and Eve because they trusted in God. They trusted that God had their best interest at mind and at heart. They trusted that God was going to continue to provide for their every last need. They knew that working on that seventh day was not going to bring any more satisfaction or grati- um, gratification to their life. But then came the serpent, and he planted that seed of doubt, and he tempted the woman to doubt the goodness of God. He's not really for you. He's holding good things back from you. And we know how the woman reached out her hand, and with that came chaos, labor became hard, and distrust sank in. You remember that the man hid from the wife, the wife hid from the man, and both of them hid from God. We found from that point forward that it's been incredibly difficult for man to trust God, that he will do more with our six days given in devotion to him than we can do with seven. We doubt that he's really for us. 
We believe that he has told us to set this side apart, but it's going to somehow lead to our ultimate loss. He's called us to set this day apart as holy, that there'll be pleasure there, but we believe that he's just holding something back for himself selfishly. That was the temptation of the serpent. That's what came in the fall. Now, we know that the Sabbath continued, but we see that it's lost. This call to rest on the seventh day, this, this commandment continued, and yet it was lost when the people were gathered, carried off into slavery. As we think about what happened there in Egypt, God's people gathered together there. Originally, they gathered together as a place of blessing because they were fleeing from the famine that had come. As Jacob and his family came into Egypt, it was a place of blessing there. As God blessed them, they were fruitful and they were multiplied and they were blessed among these people. And yet eventually, the people subjected them to slavery and labor became hard. And you must know that in that time, these patterns were lost. You see, when you're a slave, there's no more pattern of six days I work and one day I rest. There's not seasons of work and rest. It's just all work. It's just all labor. It's just all grueling. And so the people groaned to God, and they were desperate. They were desperate for God to set them free, that they could find something that resembled rest. And we see as God calls these people out of slavery, we see how he immediately institutes these patterns right back into their life. In Exodus 12, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month, that's the month that he called them out, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. We see that God's immediately reestablishing these patterns that he had set in creation, but that had been lost by sin, that had been lost to them in slavery. It was an evidence to them that I am the God who created all that is. Ezekiel 20, 20 says that. I've given you the Sabbath. I've given you this pattern of working six days and resting the seventh as a reminder that I am the God that created all that is. I'm a God who holds all that is in his hand. I'm the God that's going to meet your every last need. I'm the God that you can trust with your time. And so we see then, even before Sinai, you see the argument that many men give with regards to why this commandment doesn't exist or why it's somehow mosaic is that it only came there on Mount Sinai. That it only existed right there in that moment as God spoke to Moses and he came down and spoke on his behalf to the people. And yet we see even before they reach Sinai, in Exodus 16, we see God commanding his people that on, Saturday, uh, on Friday, excuse me, on the second to last day of the week, they were to gather a double portion that they were to cook for themselves everything that they needed because the next day, he tells them, is to be a solemn day of rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. That God was reinstituting this pattern that he had put into creation for his people as a gift, as a blessing. These were people that had just been groaning under the burden of, of labor, of slave labor. They were desperate for rest. God calls them to rest, but we see in Exodus 16, 27 that still they wouldn't oblige. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on six days he gives you bread. Excuse me. Therefore, on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. So we immediately see God's reminder here. This is not meant to be a burden. The question is, would they trust in God to provide on the seventh day? And that's what it comes down to, isn't it? Our refusal to rest, the pull of our heart to get back to work, to get back to the computer, to return that phone call, to respond to that email, is that we doubt that God will care for us. We doubt that God will provide. We doubt that God will meet our family's needs, even if failing to do this thing means a loss of that job, even if it means I must walk away from this job that requires me to work on that day, that God will provide. But the people would not. 
all throughout the history of Israel, what we find is a people who refuse to keep the Sabbath. That's what's so upside down about this. He's literally commanding you to rest, and you resist this with everything in you, you hard-hearted and stubborn people. What does this show, if not a heart of distrust? Listen, you reach out your hand and touch a woman that's not your wife, you chalk that up to a moment of lust and insanity. There's at least some rationale. It's wrong, but there's some rationale as to how you get there. You rise up in anger and you strike a man to death. Again, completely wrong, but at least you see the rationality of how did a man get here? You resist the God's, command, God's command to rest? How insane is this? And yet that's what we see all throughout the life of his people. So then we get to Mount Sinai and we see here in Exodus 20, verse 8, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day it is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Again, God is pointing back to creation because that's where this ordinance began. Just like the commandment not to murder, God's fury against Cain for slaying his brother Abel. This was something that was written into the DNA of all creation, a revelation of God's desire for us, a place of true blessing. As we see the law repeated in Deuteronomy 5.15, we read, you shall remember, speaking about the same Sabbath, that it's a gift to them so that they will remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath. He says, not only is this an ordinance to help you to remember that I am the God who created and provided and has given you everything that you need, but this is an ordinance to help you remember redemption. To help you remember that day when there was nothing but work and I saved you, I redeemed you, that you can have rest. So as the people of God gather together to remember the Sabbath, to count the Sabbath as holy, what should be in our minds? The God of creation and the God of redemption. Trusting that if this God did not need my help in breathing out the stars, if this God did not need my help in redeeming me from slavery in Egypt or to sin, then he does not need my help in labor on the seventh day. I can lay down my pretty head and I can rest and I can trust that the world will keep spinning. So it says here that we're to remember it. We're to remember it. Again, remember him as the creator. Remember him as the redeemer. Look backwards to the work that he has done. So much of God's relationship to his people is, remember when I was faithful and trust that I will be faithful. Recounting the good works that he has done. Kyle, I think, the last time he preached to you, he preached to you about the Ebenezer Stone, didn't he? Talking about these monuments that the people of Israel would set to the faithfulness of God. That we need to be a people who remember and celebrate the victories of God. When we remember all those times when God has shown up, all those times when God has provided, all those times when God has done the thing that we thought he would never, ever, ever do, that we are then emboldened to obedience. We're emboldened to trust him. And so, we're called to remember. We're called to remember the goodness of God in calling us to be a people who rest. I think part of the burden that we have as a people and why we don't count this as a blessing is because we're a people with so much stinking recreation in our lives. We're lazy people at some degree. You see, he said that for six days we're to labor and seven we're to rest. On the seventh we're to rest. But we're people who believe that we deserve a two-day weekend. Now, I've got nothing against a two-day weekend. If that's what your employer has seen fit to do, then God bless him and God bless you. 
that's not a requirement from God. But because we're a people that have become so addicted to rest, because we're a people who have spent so much time in our own recreation, in our own relaxation, we don't see a blessing in one day set aside for that purpose. Perhaps the problem is we don't work hard enough on the other six. Perhaps what we take some of the rest, even some of the recreation that's meant for that seventh day, and we try to pour it into the other six. And therefore, things that should have been done on the other six, we've pushed back to the seventh. Are you following me? Things that should be off limits on the Lord's holy day, we have now dragged in because we took rest and we forced it into days when we should have been working. We should have been honoring God with our labor. But we're reminded that it is a gift from God. We see in Jesus, in his confrontation with the religious leaders, as, as they're demanding that he follow all of their earthly and man-made ordinances, he reminds them that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. This is a gift. My desire for you, and this is, I know this is a, a longer sermon for a Sunday night perhaps, and Ellie is melting and I love her so much because she's doing so good and there's a sucker in this for her when we're done, maybe two. But my goal in this is to help you see that this is a gift from God. This is something that God put in place not just for his glory, but for your good. And I don't know what the blessing will look like. I will tell you that I am a man who is guilty of breaking this commandment. You know that about me. Now, Sabbath, perhaps, Sabbath rest especially, is going to be different for a man who preaches for a living. That I get the part right of keeping it holy and honoring God and gathering together with you to worship him. Those things are good and they are right. But I don't rest so much. And it's perhaps what God's blessing for me, would that be if I would set one day aside unto him and count it as holy and protect it fiercely as a thing that is holy? Would that blessing be that I do more in my six because I'm more rested than I would be if I worked all seven? Would it be a blessing for my family that I'm there with them more? Would it be a blessing for you people that I'm more rested when I show up on a Sunday morning to preach the word? Or even if none of those things come true, we know that there will be heavenly blessing, eternal blessing, spiritual blessing. But he reminds us that this was a gift from God to his people. But because of this, because this is a gift from God, because it can only be viewed as a gift from God when we rightly understand it within God's, the realm of God's glory and God's law, we cannot then expect unregenerate people to understand. I referenced the blue laws earlier. If you were to ask me, do I think it's good to have the blue laws? I think it's fine. We call the rest of the world to keep all the other commandments, don't we? We instruct our children to follow all the other commandments whether they believe it's right or not. So we drag our children to church whether they think it's a fine idea or not, whether they understand the purpose of setting aside a day as holy unto God or not. We bring them to this place because we say, we will set this pattern in your life. We will set up these external constraints until you have the internal conviction, until by the Spirit of God you come to see the value in this thing and taste some of the blessings that he has for you. But again, it's about much more than just rest. He says that we are to set this day apart as holy. Holy means sacred. You know this, uncommon, undesecrated, un something that's devoted to God. And when we think about those things which are sacred, those things which are holy, we would not dare allow anyone to touch them. I can be overly protective sometimes of the things in this church that we use for worship. That's a picadillo of mine, picadillo of mine. It's a problem of mine. But I can get, I watch Leanne because she knows it about me and kids come and they want to treat this thing like a pommel horse. It's just a table. It's just a table. It's a Bible. It's a, it's a candle. But I get anxious about this thing because I've set this thing aside in my little heart as something that is sacred. It's for this special purpose. 
But I think there's at least some picture there of the way we ought to treat God's days. Something that he declares holy. It's not holy because we have set it apart. He has set it apart. He has declared it holy. What makes a thing holy? Go back to the talk about who we are as the saints. What makes us holy saints? Is there something different about that day from all the other? No, there's 24 hours in it. However many minutes that works out to. It's not anything that, is a, that makes that day holy other than God has set his eye upon it. He has set his hand upon it, and he says, this one's mine. Aren't all days holy unto the Lord? Yes. We're to glorify God in all that we do. In those other six days of labor, we're to glorify him in all of it. But there's something in the mind and the heart and the will and the purpose and the law of God where he places his hand upon that one in seven, and he says, this one is holy unto me. And therefore, we must guard it ferociously. I don't know what that looks like. But we don't allow the world to dictate what this looks like. You see, the reason that this Sabbath commandment is so hard to keep is because it is so contrary to what the world tells us. Again, even so many in the believing world, they will call us legalists. They will call us crazy. They will call us overly strict. But we don't allow them to dictate what God's word says. We don't allow them to dictate what God does with that which he has called holy. But of course, holy doesn't just mean set apart from the world and off limits to the world. That means set apart unto God. And that's where it gets a whole lot more difficult. You see, there's plenty of people that rest on Sunday. Sunday's generally a day of rest for most of the world. They sleep till noon, they watch some football, they hang out with their kids, and they call it a day. And there's nothing intrinsically wrong about any of those things. Listen, I would love to sleep 11 until 11 if my body would let me and my schedule would let me. I don't have anything about against watching football, going out and taking a bike ride with your children. But the problem is, that day has not been set apart unto God for them. They're not honoring God with their labors. They're not seeking his glory in, in their rest. And so we must recognize that this thing that has been set apart, it's not just been set apart from our ordinary labors. It's not just been set apart from the world. It's been set apart to God as a day of worship and contemplation of his glory. Is it possible to do this? Is it possible to worship God, to contemplate his glory as you eat a steak? Absolutely. Absolutely. But we must recognize that when God called Pharaoh to let his people go. What he said to them, Exodus 7, 16, let my people go that they may come and serve me, worship me in the wilderness. That that was what these people needed. So much more than physical rest. So much more than earthly rest. They needed communion with God. What made the Garden of Eden so special? It's that those people dwelled in the presence of God. What do we need more than anything else? You can take all the naps in the world and never find a lick of rest. You'll see these celebrities and they'll, they'll have these mental breakdowns or something like this and the media will tell you, well, whoever it is, they've gone to this hospital to get some much needed rest. What I'm thinking in my heart is they'll never find it. Apart from resting in God, apart from trusting in him, there is never anything that will resemble true rest for your soul. And that what we need more than anything else is to spend time with him. Exercising our hearts in worship and study and prayer and piety and acts of mercy and kindness. Doing whatever it is that God puts before us on that day to his glory and communion and fellowship with him. We know, of course, that Christ Jesus is the one that came to grant us that rest. That he is the one who has come to give us access to God. He is the one that has come and released us from the burden and the curse of the law. These people who thought, just like the slaves in Egypt, they thought that they had to continually work to gain something. 
The people that were there in the wilderness, thinking they had to complete, uh, continually work to earn access to God, we see Jesus telling us, Matthew 11, verse 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We're reminded that the life of following Jesus Christ is not a life of leisure. It is not a life that is absent of suffering, but it is a restful life. It's a life where I don't trust in my own abilities. I don't trust in my own powers. I don't trust in anything that I bring to the table in order to be right with God and be able to rest in him. There's a song. I'll get on these kicks with these songs sometimes, and I'll just listen to them and repeat. There's a contemporary worship song. I don't even know who sings it. It's called Lean Back or something like that, and I immediately go to the picture in that upper room as the Apostle John is leaning back against the breast of Jesus. And I long for that. I long for that. The ability to rest, not just physically, because the re- reality is, I'm going to go home right now, I'm going to lay down my head, and my mind's immediately going to go to next Sunday sermon. I want to shut that off. Or I'll feel the burden of sin and failure. I'm going to rethink ways that I messed up this sermon, and I feel like I failed you in some way. All these things are going to be rattling, and I long for that day when I can lean back against the chest of Jesus Christ. No, I don't deserve to be here, but there's nothing for me to do now that I am. And this is what he welcomes us to. He calls us to rest, to trust in him and not in ourselves. Now we know that in the Old Covenant, the day of rest was the seventh day. That the people of Israel, they longed, they were always looking forward to rest. I want you to think about their time in the wilderness. What was God's promise? I'm going to lead you yet again into a place you didn't prepare. Just as creation, just as redemption was Canaan. A place you didn't prepare, a place flowing with milk and honey. That this was a picture of rest. Mostly physical rest, but it's a picture pointing forward to spiritual rest. And so there were people that were always looking forward to the rest to come. They were looking forward to the redemption to come. And therefore, their day of rest, their Sabbath day, was at the end of the week. It was the seventh day. But with the new covenant and the coming of Christ Jesus, specifically with his resurrection from the dead, we see the people of God now observing the Christian Sabbath on the first day of the week being Sunday. And I think this is an intentional picture from God, a reminder that we don't look forward to the accomplishing of our rest. We come out of that rest. It's been accomplished in Christ Jesus in the cross. It was proven in his resurrection. That's why we see in Matthew 28, 1, that it was, after, that it was the day after the Sabbath that Mary and Mary Magdalene went to see Jesus, and he was not there. We see throughout the book of Acts, Acts 27, that it was on the first day of the week when the people gathered together to preach and to teach and to sing psalms and to break bread. We're reminded that we are a people that don't look forward to the accomplishment of our rest. We have rested in that. In Christ Jesus, our rest has been secured. Our redemption has has been accomplished. And we're a people who now, any work that we do, it comes from that place of rest. Are you following me? So therefore, you'll find throughout the history of the church, the Sabbath, the Christian Sabbath, it uh, it is not Saturday, that it is Sunday. A day we now call the Lord's Day. You'll notice that, that I often refer to this. When I get up, I don't say Sunday often. I'll say the Lord's Day. It's a reminder that this day, just like we see the Sabbath in the Old Testament, that this day is a day completely set apart unto God. And we're reminded that every time we come in here, that while our rest has been accomplished, while our rest has been purchased, while our redemption has happened in Christ Jesus, we still long for further rest. 
That's what Hebrews 4, 9 to 10 says. So then, we're almost done. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. We're a people who long for total and final rest. While we have foretastes of this, that's what this Sabbath is. That's what this day is, that every time we come in here, we are preparing our hearts, we are looking forward, we are participating in an eternity of rest. An eternity in the presence of the one who has saved us. So I want to read, before I give you four very, very, very brief applications, I want to read you a quote from Alistair Begg. He's Scottish. What you will find, Scottish dudes love the Sabbath. They grew up in a culture where it was, I'm talking like, until like last week, it was unthinkable that a man would be out driving a car on the Sabbath. So he grew up in that culture, and you can tell that he and some of these other guys, the Sinclair Fergusons of the world, they've got this, this, this passion in their soul to help other people receive the blessing and the joy that comes from honoring the Sabbath and keeping it holy. So Begg says this, When God's people understand this, then they will not see the services of the Lord's day as intrusions upon their day of rest. That's the burden I felt. That's why we debated this for two or three years. I said, I've been telling people I want them to rest. I want the Sabbath to be a day of rest. And then I almost feel guilty for calling you to put your, put your clothes back on and get in your car and come up here. But then I came under conviction. What do you believe rest is? How dare you believe that my people gathering in fellowship with each other to sing songs of praise to me under the teaching of my word, how can you believe for one moment that that's an intrusion, that that's an abuse, that that's a restriction on their rest? So Begg says that when the people of God understand this, our desperate need for true soul rest, the participation in eternal rest that we have today, when you see this, then the services of the Lord's day, they will not see them as an intrusion upon their day of rest, but they will go home, They will close their door, and they will thank God that since the purpose of the Sabbath is for worship and for edification and for fellowship and for rest and for contemplation, they will thank God that they have been made part of such a church family that has given itself to make sure that the people of God will be able to spend their Sabbaths to their greatest profit. He's saying that you will, once you grasp this, You will go home and you will thank God that you belong to one of the few churches in the country anymore that gather together for a Sunday evening worship service. You won't find it to be a burden. You won't resent it. You won't show up just because there's some external compulsion. You will thank God that he has worked in your church to gather us together one more time with one more opportunity to worship him together. For one day when we get to heaven and we enjoy it, and we enjoy in all of eternity the worship and the love and the praise and the adoration, we may just recall an evening communion service where somehow our hearts were lifted up within us. Somehow or another, the veil has been pulled back as we sang and prayed and sat under the word of God. This isn't scripture, but Beg seems to think that someday we may be in heaven and we might look back on one Sunday night when we gathered in this place. And on that day, we might say, you know what, we weren't completely off the mark. What we experienced then, in that moment, was a taste of heaven. It was a taste of eternal rest. It was what I needed most in preparation for the six days of labor that lay ahead. And so, four very, very, very brief applications. Number one, we must protect this day and ourselves from anything that might tempt us to sin. 
That's at least part of why I'm doing this. I don't ever, as your pastor, want to give you any enticement to treat the Lord's Day as common. And one of the ways that I can do that is I can stand in this place with you people and invite you to come and worship God with me, even if it's just me and my kids. But I will send the signal to you that this day is holy, that it has been set apart. So we must protect it as such. That means we protect the activities we sign up for. We protect the sports teams we sign up for. We protect all hours of this day that God has set apart. Number two, we must consider where our mind goes once worship concludes on Sunday morning. I won't read it to you, but if you, if you go and you read the, I think it's the eighth paragraph in the London Baptist Confession statement on the Sabbath, you'll find there that one of the things that we are warned against is idle words and idle thoughts, ordinary conversations. I come under great conviction when I think about this. I don't know what this looks like for everybody, but the reality is there are far too many times when I walk into this place with all the cares of the world on my shoulder and we talk about all kinds of ordinary things until that clock strikes zero and then I try to get myself into a place of worship. And the reality is the minute we get done singing doxology, my mind goes on to whatever's next. So I would challenge you to check your heart, to check your mind, to check your thoughts and ask, am I guarding this? Am I guarding this that I keep the whole day holy? This whole day, my thoughts, my speech, the intentions of my heart devoted to God is holy. Number three, ask yourself if you are helping and allowing other members of your faith family to rest when they come into this place. Oftentimes, whenever I'm trying to go through something like this, I go and look at what other people say, what an Alistair Begg says or what somebody much smarter and wiser and more seasoned than I do have to say when, when I came to this point that God's laid on my heart I can't find anybody else that said it I'm not telling you it's original it may be it's wrong but there's a phrase that I get to hear all the I get to hear all the good stuff that comes out of the the ladies bible study a Thursday night ladies bible study and 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 it encourages me to hear some of the stuff they talk about but one of the things that Leanne told me way back when you may not even remember this way back when was that you ladies would look at each other and say we need you to get to heaven not we need you to go to heaven we need you so I can get to heaven. Say it. Help me get to heaven. Now God gets you to heaven. It's Christ who saves. But the reality is over and over and over again through the scripture, we are called a body. We're called to build each other up, to spur each other on to maturity, to cheer for each other that we would endure, that we would run the race well. And I think that this applies to this area as well. Do you know how many people, they hit these doors on Sunday morning and they were doing everything they could to get here? Between sick parents and disobedient children and a car that was busted, they were doing everything they could to crawl in these doors. So the question is, when they hit these doors, am I building them up and making this into a place of rest or am I a burden to them? Am I an exhaustion to them? Am I a discouragement to them? Am I a place where they can come? Am I someone that they can trust, where they can say, I've got burdens, brother, and they're too much for me to bear? Would you help? Would you walk alongside me? Would you care? And then number four, would you speak the truth about God's law to others? Would you speak the truth with your mouth? Would you speak the truth with your life? Would you love your neighbor enough to speak the truth about the Sabbath, as weird as that makes you? As contrary as that makes you to the rest of culture, 
would you be willing to stand upon this for the love of your neighbor, knowing that they are blessed when they can see, they can hear, they can know the word of God and just perhaps be saved? Could the God of the universe use your refusal to treat the Lord's day as common? Could he use that to save your neighbor? I believe he could. I believe when your neighbor looks and says, you know what? That dude is never outside doing the common, ordinary, everyday things on this day. I wonder why. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you for this day that you have given us. Father, as I said when I started, each man must be convicted in his heart. The reality is there are plenty of good Christian men. There are plenty. The, the message that I just preached would put me in the vast majority of Baptist preachers. And so there are plenty of good and faithful and, and Christian godly men who completely disagree with me on this fact. So each man here must be convicted in his own heart. He must be convinced of that fourth commandment that it still stands and that this first day of the week, the Lord's Day, is the new Christian Sabbath. So Father, for those that have come under this conviction, I pray that you would bless them as they seek to walk in light of that, to lead their families in light of that. Father, we know that it will not be easy. You've got little children. It's hard to get back here. You're older and don't like to drive at night. Once it gets dark in the winter, it'll be hard to get here. There'll be a million excuses and a million challenges and a million struggles, and so I pray that you bless them in their obedience. For those that are not convinced, Father God, I pray that you bless them and let them do with this day as you would have them and to do it in peace. So, Father, we love you, we trust you, and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.